This week on Perspective, Venezuela's disintegration, a deepening crisis. Venezuela is collapsing. Its people are hungry, some starving, even dying from malnutrition. They are sick. Disease is spreading. Diphtheria, measles, malaria. What little there is to buy is exorbitantly priced. Inflation is on track to hit an unimaginable 51 million percent this year. Last month, a five-day power blackout ravaged what was left of an economy already crippled by sanctions, corruption and mismanagement. For decades, the country has relied on its rich oil supply, but now, by some estimates, crude oil production could drop by as much as 60 percent this year. The country's aluminum and steel production is all but gone. Through it all, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro has clung to power, blamed the U.S., blamed the media and arrested journalists, and denied that his country needs help. As thousands of Venezuelans marched in the streets, Maduro cracked down, arresting and detaining hundreds, including children. That hasn't stopped the protests. Opposition leader Juan Guaido now recognizes the country's interim president by more than 50 countries, continues to rally supporters, even as living conditions worsen. This past week, Human Rights Watch and the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health issued a report documenting the health crisis, urging the UN to step forward and formally declare a humanitarian emergency. U.S. Vice President Pence called on the U.N. to recognize a Guaido government and revoke the credentials of the Maduro regime. With all due respect, Mr. Ambassador, you shouldn't be here. You should return to Venezuela and tell Nicolas Maduro that his time is up. It's time for him to go. The ambassador smirked. Maduro called the request ridiculous. But at the same time, for the first time, Maduro acknowledged his country needs help and reached an agreement with the International Red Cross to allow some international aid. On the program this week, a look at both the humanitarian and political crisis in Venezuela and where things may go from here. We'll speak with one of the authors of the Human Rights Watch report and consider some of the international political influences at play. But we begin with freelance journalist Stefano Pozzibon. He has reported for several international news organizations, including CNN and RAI. He spoke to us from Caracas. The recent reports suggest that the health system is utter, in utter collapse at this point. But we've seen this coming week by week, day by day, the spread of disease and malnutrition. How would you describe what life is like for Venezuelans today? Every time we have a little moment to step out of the story and try to reflect and make sense of what is happening in front of our eyes, you always think this can't go worse than, than what it is. And it always managed somehow to get worse. At the beginning, it was just like if you have a pre-existing condition, you won't be able to face, uh, to, to, you won't be able to cure it. You won't be able to find any medicine. Uh, for, for dealing with a chronic disease. And now it's getting, it's getting worse and worse. The latest uh, uh, challenge is, for example, the electricity situation with uh, multiple blackouts happening since March 8, which is when the first big national blackout uh, power outage uh, hit Venezuela. And since that moment, most of the hospitals haven't been able to have a consistent amount of power, electricity, actually. And, and that means that everything is becoming less and less reliable. It's a daily challenge and, and people have to spend 
an increasing amount of time and increasing amount of effort in trying to survive, uh, looking for food, looking for medicines, trying to fix everyday's problems, uh, things that we out in the West give sort of for granted. We've all watched people come out at the protest rallies, and obviously a lot of the talk initially was about the politics uh -huh. and about uh, Guaido. Um, but when people protest now, what brings them when the situ their personal living situation is so dire? Of course, uh, and that's the first uh, uh, that's the first reason why people take out onto the streets. Most of the people don't take out; they they almost surrender the dream of uh, on seeing something change in the political situation because nothing has changed in the last uh, in the last twenty. 20 years or so, but they won't see change in in the in in their living conditions. So you see people out, and I remember yesterday I was at a white oil rally, and and a person was out with uh, with a with a, a flag, um, not a flag, sorry, a, a sign, paper yeah. saying I pro a sign exactly. I protest for water, electricity, studying, uh, and uh, and a free Venezuela. So the first three. The first three reasons to protest are water, electricity, being able to study, and then there is the the, the aspiration of uh, of a free of a free Venezuela, free out of, a, of an increasingly authoritarian authoritarian government, and uh, and and that's also it's remarkable with with the news of of today uh, when we see, for example, what happened uh, this morning in in Sudan. Um, this has been has been on the, on the radar here for for the past two weeks or so. And yesterday, Guaido himself addressed it and said, "We're seeing that in other places of the world, people are rising and people are putting their hopes uh, on the line to try to remove uh, what he he called uh, a dictator, so uh, Bashir, the, the Sudan the Sudan uh, leader." And uh, and that happened in, in Sudan. What the difference here in in Venezuela is that it takes so long to happen because people, for example won't be able to protest as long as they don't, they don't have uh, food. Or, for example, if they, if they have water coming uh, once every two days between 10 a.m. And, uh, and 12 p.m., you bet they will try to stay at home and uh, make the most of the water that they're given rather than go out and protest. You've also pointed out in your reporting that there is some kind of frustration growing within the opposition, that, in fact, there may be fewer people at the rallies. As you may have pointed out, one of the reasons, they're staying home to try and get water or food. But what's the other source of their frustration? Guaido has, Juan Guaido, the leader of the opposition, who swore himself in as, uh, as uh, president, as interim president of Venezuela, on, uh, on on January 23, uh, he he addressed and embodied the hopes of so many people here in Venezuela, and that hope has so far not been uh, answered, has not has not succeeded in ousting Nicolas Maduro yet. And that sort of uh, big transitional government, that moment, that breakthrough that so many people have been looking for for such a long time uh, here in Venezuela hasn't arrived yet. And that's a very, very familiar, frustrating situation for, for Venezuelans have taken onto the streets in 2014, 2017. In 2017, uh, the protests rocked here in Caracas for more than three months. 135 people were killed in clashes with uh, security forces, and the world was watching. And then eventually nothing, nothing really happened. And by August 20, 2017, 
um, Maduro was still very much in charge, uh, and he went on to rule uh, un un unchallenged for the rest, uh, you know, for the rest of the year and for the whole of of 2018. And now people are watching the events in Sudan and saying we should do that here because we see around the world that when people take onto the streets. Uh, there is still hope and the possibility of of, uh, of causing a change in government. It just seems that that is not happening in Venezuela. It seems, though, too, that in some sense the political crisis has been superseded by the humanitarian crisis that the country is now facing. Maduro appeared to agree to some kind of agreement to perhaps let aid come into the country with the, with the Red Cross. That's not happening yet. Um, how realistic is it, do you think, based on your own experience, to expect that and that it might actually even arrive soon? It's remarkable, the fact that now Nicolas Maduro and his government are finally addressing the humanitarian crisis and calling it as it is a humanitarian crisis. Because I remember many, many times you would go to a press conference here and ask the question about how can it be that the living conditions are so dire? How can it be that you as a government are not looking after uh, the health situation or the situation in the hospitals? And they, you know, you have government spokespeople telling you straight in the face that there is no humanitarian crisis happening in Venezuela. Finally, the government has changed its strategy because it realizes that it's, it can no longer, it's not longer able to silence those who are saying that uh, the humanitarian crisis is mounting here in Venezuela. And also they, they probably have something to earn in the political spectrum, earning the, in terms of their political capital by brokering the arrival of some uh, of some humanitarian aid, and so that that is a, a political capital that Nicolas Maduro wants to tap into by saying, "I am the one that is trying its best to solve the the, the humanitarian crisis." Stefano, thank you very much for your insight. Thank you. A broader perspective on the Venezuelan crisis now and a look at some of the outside influences at play. Eric Farnsworth is a noted expert who has worked in both the U.S. State Department, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office and the Clinton White House. He is now vice president of the Council of the Americas and the Americas Society. Just recently, President Nicolas Maduro agreed with the Red Cross to let in some aid. And for so long, he's denied that there's been any crisis at all. Help me understand Maduro's game here. His game is political and it's ideological. If he can uh, keep aid out of the country that's desperately needed, he can make the claim, as preposterous as it is, that there's no need for the aid, that there's no crisis in Venezuela, that the Chavista revolution can, in fact, deliver benefits to the people of Venezuela. Now, we know that that's on its face untrue, but that's the game that he's trying to play. At the same time, do you think he sees political advantage now, given how dire the situation is in the country, that if that aid arrives, he can wear that too? I've been surprised it's taken him so long to get to this place, uh, because I think it clearly does benefit him. If he can get the international community to provide assistance to his own people who desperately need it, uh, that's going to benefit the regime in some way. And it will also take pressure off uh, the international community from insisting on him allowing aid to come into the country, because now it is. Talk a little bit about the international influence, because much of the outside influence and the pressure on him coming from the United States, for example, from the Lima Group, uh, including Canada, um, has been on the political side. And when you look at the Red Cross or you look at the plea for the United Nations to get involved, they're trying to take politics out of the equation. Is that, yeah, that going to work? 
Well, I think uh, the situation is inherently political at this point, uh, and it's—you probably can't divorce it from the politics of the moment. Uh, the reality is the Venezuelan people are suffering. They do need help. Uh, more than 10 percent of the entire population of Venezuela is now outside of the country, many of them refugees in neighboring Colombia, Brazil, the small islands of the Caribbean, uh, and many have uh, migrated further afield. This is not because they want to leave Venezuela. It's because the situation there is so desperate. So you can't really say. Uh, you know that there's nothing uh, there's nothing political behind this, but I think the first step is to try to get assistance uh, to the people who need it. But having said that, uh, in order to change the scenario fundamentally and to begin to restore uh, Venezuela to the place that it used to be, uh, you really do need to have uh, the Maduro regime move on. You need to have uh, the restoration of the democratic path in Venezuela, and you have to have the ability. Uh, to return to a productive uh, country. Venezuela used to be Latin America's wealthiest country. Now it's a humanitarian crisis. That's how far it's fallen. There is some evidence, in spite of the popularity of Juan Guaido, that there is a building frustration within the opposition inside the country. You talked about Maduro's approach to Guaido as slicing salami. Uh, help me understand what you mean. <laughs> The international community has made very clear that if uh, Maduro moves against interim president Juan Guaido, that they, the international community, will have a response. Clearly, there are additional steps that they're prepared to take in trying to keep uh, uh, Juan Guaido safe, uh, as well as people around him and his associates. What the Maduro government or the Maduro regime has done is to uh, take note of that, and so they're trying to take steps that they can to try to get closer, to try to continue to keep him on the defensive, to try to um, uh, make him uncomfortable, uh, and ha to have to react to the actions of the Maduro regime, rather than spending his time uh, building the movement uh, to try to restore democracy to Venezuela. So in the Middle East, uh, these would be called salami tactics, where you take one slice at a time and you keep trying to go forward to your ultimate goal. And I think Maduro is doing that, to try to see how far he can go to try to uh, persecute uh, Guaido before the international community takes any action. Take a step back now and talk to me a bit about the role that outside players have had, for example, Cuba, China, Russia, and to what extent they have what extent they played supporting him. So many people are focused on so-called U.S. intervention, which hasn't even occurred and most likely won't in Venezuela. And at the same time, Cuba, China and Russia have already intervened in Venezuela. In particular, the Cubans have uh, fully uh, integrated themselves into Venezuela's security services, into their military, into the basic functions of the state, like passport services, the health care system, so that you—so that the Cubans really know uh, who's doing what in Venezuela and can keep tabs on people and can, frankly, uh, try to uh, keep, uh, in particular, the military and intelligence services uh, from working to, to overthrow uh, Maduro. The, the Chinese have given a lot of money. Um, they're probably less interested in the political developments in Venezuela and more interested in the oil uh, in Venezuela. They've given a lot of money up front, and they're being repaid by uh, oil. But that has—that money has helped sustain 
uh, the Maduro regime in Venezuela. And then the Russians have become very active in, in Venezuela recently, even uh, sending a small number of troops uh, to, uh, to Venezuela, uh, certainly working with the Venezuelan intelligence services, working with the energy sector. Uh, and as we know from history, uh, Russian engagement in the Western Hemisphere is something that uh, even the countries of Latin America tend to look at with skepticism. And, and in the current situation, it's clearly unhelpful. So you have three countries who are very actively providing support to the Maduro regime in Venezuela, and that's complicating uh, the ability of the Venezuelan people themselves to try to transition toward a more democratic path. Given that global perspective, what does that suggest about what the U.S., Canada, and other countries, with a different point of view, about how they should approach this? I've been very uh, heartened that uh, the Lima Group, of which, as you mentioned, Canada is a very important member, uh, has taken a leadership role uh, in trying to, first of all, alert the international community to the tragedy of Venezuela under Chavismo, uh, has also taken the lead in terms of uh, the initial recognition of Juan Guaido, and working very closely with the United States uh, and others. So I think there has been a very uh, a very uh, intentional um, effort to try to make sure that this is a regional uh, perspective and a regional effort. But at the same time, uh, the United States is the country that maintains the most leverage on Venezuela, and that's because our energy sectors for years have been fully integrated. Uh, and uh, it used to be that that was seen as a very positive thing, a very good thing. Uh, but that does give uh, the United States leverage over Venezuela, and the United States has recently moved to try to uh, employ that leverage uh, by uh, refusing to allow uh, financing to go to the Maduro regime, the thinking being that if the regime is starved for uh, resources, then it can't pay its supporters, particularly in the military and security services. And at some point, they then say their life would be a lot better without Mr. Maduro uh, and would be willing to get rid of him. And I think that's the calculus that's been uh, that Washington and other capitals have been pursuing. The question is, uh, is Mr. Maduro willing to play that game? Uh, and in the meantime, as we've already discussed, the support of Cuba, Russia, and China, in particular, is undermining that approach. So it is a very complicated effort, uh, a very complicated issue uh, that requires a lot of sophisticated effort. Um, at some point, will there be some sort of military response? I don't think that's in the cards, certainly not uh, for the uh, in the current circumstances. Mr. Farnsworth, I thank you very much for your expertise on this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've really appreciated it. We mentioned earlier the recent report documenting the health crisis in Venezuela and describing the health system as one in utter collapse. Tamara Tarasuk Bronner is one of the co-authors of that report. She's America's senior researcher for Human Rights Watch, and she spoke to us from Colombia, where so many Venezuelans have sought refuge from the dire situation at home. When you describe the health system in Venezuela uh, in a system, as a system in utter collapse, what do you actually mean? We are seeing outbreaks of preventable diseases, such as measles and diphtheria. For example, if you take measles, there were no recorded cases of measles in Venezuela for nearly a decade, except for one in 2012. And since the outbreak began in mid-2017, we are seeing more than 9,000 reported cases and more than 6,000 confirmed cases. There are also spikes in the cases of malaria and tuberculosis. And the number of patients with HIV that do not have access to antiretroviral treatment 
is of nine out of 10. So every 10 Venezuelans with HIV, nine do not have access to medication that is life-saving. Hmm. I was gonna say that's the other issue, right? Is the access to medical care. What can you tell us about that? Well, today in Venezuela is extremely difficult to get access to medicines and medical supplies. When you go to the hospital, you need to take your own medical kit. They call it with the elements they need to be able to treat you. There is also an exodus of Venezuelans more widely, but it, that includes doctors and medical professionals. So it's harder to get adequate care in hospitals. And all of this is made much, much worse due to the electricity cuts. It also makes it harder to get access to water in hospitals. You have urged the United Nations to take a leadership role in this and declare it officially a humanitarian crisis. The Red Cross has finally reached some kind of an agreement with Maduro and says it's going to increase its aid and get some access into the country. What do you think the UN action would actually accomplish? The only organization that has the capacity to carry out the large-scale humanitarian measures that are needed to address this crisis is the UN led at its highest levels. And the way this would happen is if UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres declares, officially declares that Venezuela is facing a humanitarian emergency, this is a technical UN term that would make it much more feasible for sufficient resources to be deployed to address this crisis in the short term. Even if you can't get into the country? The truth is that we were not asking Guterres to ask permission to send an additional container with medicines. What he needs is to redouble the pressure coming from the highest levels of the United Nations so that it is the UN that leads these efforts. And the evidence that we've seen is that when under pressure, the government of Maduro responds. And, you know, that's, it's not a coincidence that the Red Cross um, access to Venezuela is happening right after a public report was, a private report was leaked in which uh, the UN was starting to look at the situation in Venezuela. You know, there are so many needs in Venezuela now. As you point out, it's, it's medicine and medical care, it's food, it's rebuilding the infrastructure. What's the priority here in your view? One thing that is definitely a starting point is carrying out a comprehensive diagnosis by independent actors of the extent of the crisis. Because the numbers we show in our report are extremely problematic and troubling, but it's just the peak of the iceberg. Uh, so one of the first steps is for Guterres to request access to Venezuelan authorities to comprehensive data that they have and have deliberately hidden over the past couple of years. Um, and evidently, the silent diplomacy that they've chosen until now has not been effective. And that's why we're asking for a shift of strategy. And, and that strategy would be, when, when you talk about a shift in strategy? That strategy would be to call things by their name. This is a humanitarian emergency. Guterres needs to say so explicitly. He needs to establish that Venezuela is a priority for the UN emergency relief coordinator who heads OCHA, the Office of Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs at the United Nations, and formally and publicly require access to this epidemiological data that would allow the United Nations to carry out this comprehensive assessment and use that as a basis 
to carry out a large-scale operation that is necessary. Thank you very much for your expertise. Thank you for having me. 25% of the Venezuelan people need some form of humanitarian assistance, according to the UN. According to a recent survey, 80% of all households don't have a reliable source of food. Two-thirds of people surveyed have lost weight, on average nearly 11 kilos, or 25 pounds. 3.7 million people are undernourished. Around 17% of children under the age of 5 are malnourished. Two-thirds of Venezuelans suffer from water shortages or have lost all access to water this month. There has been a 70% increase in the number of malaria cases, a measles epidemic, and a diphtheria outbreak in the country. The only medicine available comes from aid organizations. Around 5,000 people flee the country every day. 3.4 million people have left so far. Canada is one of the founding members of the 14-member Lima Group, established to try to help bring a peaceful resolution to the political crisis in Venezuela. Some perspective on that now. Isaac Naun is from Venezuela and often writes about his home country. He's a professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Ottawa. What may have initially been seen as a political crisis in Venezuela is now a humanitarian crisis, an overwhelming humanitarian crisis, it seems. What more do you think the Lima Group, and particularly Canada, should be doing now? Well, I think the Lima Group uh, has played a very uh, positive role in the crisis of Venezuela in terms of supporting, you know, a transition towards a, a, a democracy uh, and also in, in, you know, making clear that the situation according to all international standards, is completely unacceptable. And I think what we expect now from the Lima Group and Canada is continue putting pressure on the Maduro regime in order to facilitate a transition towards a democracy and to have free elections in Venezuela. And I think Canada could play also a very important role, particularly helping those migrants, you know, going to Colombia and Brazil. Uh, they're getting some help from the United Nations Refugee Agency, but I think Canada also could play a more uh, important role in helping these people while they are moving from uh, Colombia or Brazil to other countries. Is there a risk in getting, um, in focusing on the politics and the ideology involved here um, when the humanitarian crisis runs so deep, because Maduro still has supporters in the country. You can say that maybe he has, what, 10 percent of the population behind him, mm -hmm. for many reasons. I mean, certainly you have uh, public uh, servants who are uh, under a lot of pressure from, from the regime. Then you have uh, part of the military also. And, the, and then you have these groups called, what we call collectivos, the paramilitary and the militia behind him. But this is a really a minority. This is a small group of people, who, and they are kind of uh, uh, in a situation where they don't want to leave, where they, they, they don't want to uh, facilitate a transition towards democracy. But the, the issue here is the huge humanitarian emergency that Venezuelans are living that has been recognized by all the UN agencies. UNICEF, mm -hmm. uh, the UN uh, Commissioner of Human Rights, Michel Bachelet, uh, yesterday the Secretary General 
of the UN, Mr. Guterres. It's clear that we have a huge crisis affecting people at many levels. The question is how you can face these severe crises without a political change. Mm -hmm. It will be very, very difficult. You've written about a Maduro propaganda campaign in Canada. What are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about a global, a global campaign, a global propaganda machine uh, that Chavismo has put in place uh, and, and has been very active in Canada. Uh, what they, they try to say is that, well, Venezuela is under attack of uh, American imperialism, that actually Maduro is not responsible of this crisis, that at the end uh, Chavez's legacy is very positive. But unfortunately, they are not saying the truth. And I think they are trying to fool the Canadian public, and they are, to they are trying to present a position where uh, Maduro is kind of a victim of some kind of conspiracy, uh, which is not true. As you uh, say, do you think it's got traction, that, that no, campaign? No, no, I, I don't think they, they have that much uh, traction, uh, but they are playing a very negative role in trying to have these, uh, uh, you know, this position where they want to present the truth or the right view on Venezuela, and this is very unfortunate. But this machine is uh, very active everywhere in the world. When you look at the messages, when you look at the images they use, it's the same thing. And we should fight this propaganda. One of the roles of the Venezuela diaspora is to present what we consider to be the reality of Venezuela. Thank you very much for your insight. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. If you'd like to take another look at any of the interviews in the program or at any of our previous programs, they're all available on our webpage at cpac.ca slash perspective. And now you can also take the program with you. All of our programs are available as a podcast. You can find links to where to listen on our webpage. And we'd like to hear from you. If you'd like to comment on anything you see or hear, you can reach us on Twitter and Facebook or by email at perspective at cpac.ca. I'm Alison Smith. Thanks for watching.